did I say turn to Mark chapter 7? Find your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in the middle of that chapter, beginning in verse 24, here in just one moment. do need to say one thing, uh, just by way of announcement, and you can read about this in your bulletin. Uh, but we have a, it's August, that's crazy to me too. Um, but we have a couple more urgent needs as it relates to ministry around here both of them in the children's ministry area. Uh, So our children's Sunday school uh, is trying to round out and fill out staffing. Uh, That means teachers for the fall. Uh, We have a good group of substitute teachers that carry the summer load, uh, but then we put a new slate together for fall. Uh, We really need commitments for that. So if you think God might be calling you at all to to do that, just want to invite you uh, to really think that through, pray it through, find Sky Weber, uh, and commit to teaching uh, elementary Sunday school. So that's basically like pre-K through sixth grade or fifth gr- sixth grade. We would love to have you on board, and we certainly have a need uh, for Sunday school workers. We also have a need coming up at the end of August, August 23rd and 24th, our parenting conference. Uh, we want as many parents in our church as possible to be a part of that, uh, and what that requires then is somebody to watch their children. Uh, so for a, a couple of hours on a Saturday night and then a couple of hours on a Sunday night, if you could just give of yourself, maybe you're an empty nester, maybe you don't have kids yet, uh, to just give of yourself to see that our, our parents with kids that need to be at this conference can attend and know that their, uh, their little ones are well taken care of. So that's just a couple of plugs, announcements, kind of a call to service uh, for you this morning. First, I'll start with a picture. This is Charlotte. Charlotte is our family dog. She's actually the girl's dog, but Mandy and I take care of her. I think you know how that goes. Um, And the most emasculating thing I get to do each day is take my little seven-pound dog on a walk. Okay, this is just not a manly dog. It's not a Labrador or a Great Dane or anything like that. Uh, And one of the selling points that was told to us when we were convinced that we needed Charlotte, uh, one of the selling points was that she was a really clean animal. You know, she doesn't have fur. She has hair, we were told. And because of that, she's hypoallergenic. She doesn't shed, okay, but she's still a dog. And on its best day, dogs are just not clean. Uh, We're reminded of this recently when she brought the leg of a dead rabbit into the house, and she tried to hide it under the girl's bed. You know, what is she carrying? Oh, okay, that's kind of gross. Just not clean, right? But the one redeeming quality that Charlotte has is she serves as sort of a secondary vacuum cleaner, right? She hovers around the kitchen table at mealtimes because what Charlotte has learned is that three children can be messy, and that a lot of food might come her way if she just sort of waits beneath the legs of the table. So she helps with cleanup under the table, and then if everyone leaves the table, she'll help with cleanup on the table as well. I think you know how that goes. But that's, you know, that's not really the way it's supposed to go, yet it does happen more times than we'd like to admit. So that's Charlotte. We love her, sort of, and, um, yeah, she's our dog. And, and why do I bring up my dog? Well, let's just jump in. Let's read our passage for today, and I think you'll see why. Again, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And from there he, he being Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, 
a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. So as we started the book of Mark now for, excuse me, if we study the book of Mark now for seven or eight months, we've seen that this gospel writer Mark, he gives us a picture that, of Jesus that is authoritative, that is kingly, that is compassionate and caring, and at the same time, he shows us that Jesus really has a way of offending people. In fact, the religious leaders of the day, they are so offended at Jesus that they have reached the point where they want him dead. In chapter 3, it says that they are plotting to destroy him. They don't want him around anymore. And that's because the gospel that Jesus is preaching, the good news that Jesus is heralding everywhere that he goes, it is offensive. And it's offensive to the scribes and Pharisees because salvation in Jesus stands opposed to all schemes of self-salvation. Let me say that again. Salvation in Jesus stands in opposition to all schemes of self-salvation. And that really is today the exact same reason that people in our day and age are offended at Jesus. The salvation Jesus offers requires a kind of humility that looks to Jesus as your only hope. The salvation that Jesus offers requires that you see Jesus not as not only as your salvation from sin, your savior from sin, but the only savior, period. And that idea is kind of repugnant to modern man. For there to be an exclusive sort of savior, for there to be only one way to eternal life, for salvation to be by faith alone. That's it. None of these things connect with a modern worldview. And so even today, people want Jesus done away with so they can get on with their projects in self-salvation, be it salvation through religion or politics or health and wellness or education or whatever. Everyone knows that we need to be saved, but they don't really want an actual Savior. They want to do some work in saving themselves. Which is, to me, why this woman's appearance in our text today is so, so refreshing. She stands in contrast to that kind of thinking. She stands in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees that we keep encountering that are coming against Jesus' ministry. The men that want to do it themselves. The men that have a very convoluted and sophisticated way of doing it themselves. But even still, even as refreshing as her attitude is, the words of Jesus to her here are a little bit puzzling. And on the surface, when we read them, they may be even a little bit disturbing. So we're going to go through this passage trying to explain this in three parts. We're going to look at the desperate plea of this Syrophoenician woman. We're going to look at a seemingly insulting parable given by Jesus to this woman. And then the great faith that's on display here from this woman. But first, I want us to, to kind of settle in on the setting 
that we have. The, the, verse 24 gives us a setting. Jesus leaves Galilee and heads north to Tyre and Sidon. So this is the start of a week's, maybe months-long journey out of Galilee. Here's a map. It's a little bit different map than I've been showing you uh, throughout our study, but there you see the word Galilee uh, on the left side of the map. There's the Sea of Galilee, that circle just to uh, the east of it. And this dotted line that's moving up toward that area called Syrophoenicia and those two cities that you probably can't read because they're an awfully small font, Tyre and Sidon. And this trip is just now starting out. He's just now getting to that area of Syrophoenicia. He's going to wrap around a a really long way up toward, uh, back toward the Decapolis and back toward the sea and then back up toward Caesarea Philippi, about 150 miles in all. And the trip is fairly undocumented. There's just a few events recorded on this journey. And it's the opinion of most commentators that this trip is largely given by Jesus to training the 12 disciples. That's what's on his agenda. So Jesus gets out of Galilee, a place where he is wildly popular, but at the same time, very polarizing. And he first heads here 25, 30 miles north to Tyre. And at this point in Mark, he's basically done with Galilee. He'll still move through there on a couple occasions, but in many ways he's transitioning his ministry away from the Galilean Jews. And Matthew's account of this event, Matthew 15, it says that he's he's in the city of Tyre. So our passage says he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Matthew tells us he's actually in Tyre. So he's not the, on the outskirts of a Gentile land. He's well into it. He's in this city, Tyre. And Tyre was a significant city. It was a coastal city in what today is the modern country of Lebanon, so north and west of Galilee. Tyre had been the hometown of Jezebel. Remember Jezebel, the wicked uh, wife of, the, uh, of, of Israel's King Ahab? It was the city where the worship of Baal had originated, Uh, where that nasty cult had gotten its start. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, says that Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism that a Jew expected to encounter. So so this is like the Las Vegas of the region, right? Uh, No offense to Hunter if she's here. I don't know if Hunter's headed off to Las Vegas this month to go to school. But this is just a wicked place. This was also a place with a long history of antagonism toward Israel. Jewish historian Josephus, he said that the inhabitants of Tyre were notoriously our most bitter enemies, the most bitter enemies of the Jews. So when you think about it, it's not without some intention that Jesus has just rebuked the Pharisees He's rebuked them about what it means to be clean or unclean. And now he sets out to the city that they would have identified as the most unclean place in the entire region, the city of Tyre. And his intent, I think, is to get some rest ever since the disciples have come back together after uh, a ministry journey. They come back. He's tried to get them rest. Hasn't been successful. The crowds are just too demanding. So he's there. He's trying to get away. They've entered into a house. They're not wanting anyone to to know, but 13 Jews roll into town, into Tyre. It's probably hard to keep things quiet. And the end of verse 24 says that he could not be hidden, which is a great little detail to apply to your life. 
if Christ is alive in you, that is a reality that cannot be hidden. You can try to be on incognito and sort of keep a low profile, but if Christ is in you, if he is alive in you, that cannot be hidden. People will sniff it out, or you just will not be able to keep silent about the hope that, that, that you have. So now then to this woman, to our outline. We first see this sort of desperate, not sort of desperate plea, this clearly desperate plea in verses 25 and 26. And as we look at her desperate plea, we need to not overlook how, this, how the text describes her. Her description is what one commentator called a crescendo of demerit. It's a great phrase. A crescendo of demerit, which means Mark is going to considerable length to show us how, in the mind of the Jews, to show us how unclean this woman is. First, she's unclean by virtue of the fact that she's a woman. Religious leaders did not interact with women, particularly women who were not in their own household. First century Judaism was very, very harsh with women. I'm grateful for a Savior that valued and loved and elevated women. Next, though, this woman's daughter, a little girl, she had an unclean spirit. So this woman, in caring for her daughter, is in almost constant contact with a demon, a spirit of uncleanliness. So again, just unclean, unclean. Third, she is a Gentile. Gentiles were unclean by Jewish standards. There's no two bones about it. More on that in a minute. Fourth, she is a Syrophoenician by birth. So she lived in this Greek city of Tyre, meaning she spoke Greek and worshipped the gods of the Greek and probably the Roman pantheon as well. So religiously, she has never known anything but pagan idolatry, which is just unclean and repugnant in the mind of the but, but, in the verse 26, she's begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this woman has heard of Jesus' ability to perform miracles. She knows that he possesses power that the pagan gods do not have. So on behalf of her sick little girl, her possessed little girl, she is begging Jesus. The verb for beg is actually in the imperfect form, which points to a repeated sort of ongoing action. She begged and begged and kept on begging is what it means. And when we read this story in Matthew's gospel, it says that she was continually crying out, that she was causing such a scene that the disciples were telling Jesus to get rid of her. In Matthew 15, they said, Jesus, this woman is crying out after us. Send her away. In other words, this lady's embarrassing us. We're not from around here. These people are our enemies. She's causing a scene. Either heal her daughter or tell her to be quiet. Get rid of her. And if you read the account in Matthew, Jesus does neither of those things. It's really startling. He basically ignores her. He pays no attention to her. And there's something really interesting about, about the cries that Matthew tells us she makes. Matthew 15 says, she comes and she says, Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on me, Lord. That's a really strong confession. She goes on further, Lord, son of David, she calls him. Remember, this is a Syrophoenician woman. A Gentile, a woman the scribes and Pharisees would have seen as the embodiment of uncleanliness. And she confesses Jesus to be the Lord, to be the son of David, a distinctly uh, Jewish 
title for the Messiah. And on top of that, she says, you're the one that has mercy. You're the one that can give me mercy. There's so much wrapped up in her, in her cry and her confession here. It's really amazing. And I bring all those out of Matthew's account for us to see that she's, she's not just asking for a display of great power. She's pleading for mercy. She's not saying, hey, you've done miracles all around. I, I, I'm worthy of one, too. I deserve one, too. I, I need to receive one, too. No, she's saying, I, I'm not worthy. I need mercy, Lord. I, I'm not worthy on behalf of my demon-possessed little girl, my unclean little girl. Be merciful to me. And I say it in that way, and I approach it that way, because mercy assumes unworthiness. Let that sink in a little bit. Mercy assumes unworthiness. When you cry out to God for salvation, for his mercy, you're assuming unworthiness. When you look to Jesus to save you, you are proclaiming that you need saving, and you're not worthy to accomplish that saving. You assume unworthiness. So this woman comes to the right object, Jesus, and she comes with the right attitude, this just stark humility. And then the text in Matthew, again, a little more descriptive, says this. It's right along with the, Matthew, with the Mark passage. The Mark passage repeats it. It says, She fell at his feet and she begged him. She fell at his feet. That phrase should remind you of someone else in the book of Mark. Someone else who came to Jesus pleading for his daughter. Remember the synagogue ruler Jairus? Remember him? His daughter was at the point of death, and he comes sort of elbowing through the crowds to get to Jesus. Jairus, too, fell at his feet. So what connection do this woman and Jairus have? I'm not saying that people that love their kids will do anything to see them well, though that's true. The old saying is correct. You are only as well as your sickest kid. But that's not the connection I want to make. The connection worth pointing out is whether you're a respected synagogue ruler like Jairus or an unclean Gentile woman, you come to Jesus on the exact same terms. The same way. You come desperately. You come with Humility. You come with worship and in need of mercy. You fall at his feet and you plead with him. Plead that his power would do what you are powerless to do. All of us come to Jesus on those exact same terms. Everyone for all time that wants the mercy of Jesus has to come to him the same way. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. True faith acknowledges your own powerlessness and affirms the Savior's generosity and appeals to that generosity and says, I need mercy. There's a great hymn with a great line. The line is, all the fitness he requireth is that you see your need of him. All the fitness he requireth, requires, is that you see your need of him. And if there is any person or church or movement that tries to tell you that you need to do something to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus in your life, you be sure and run from that. 
because you don't do anything. It's all of his grace. It's all of his great mercy. We come to Jesus with nothing but need. We come to Jesus in great praise of his generosity, affirming that he alone has the mercy that we long for. And that is this woman's desperate plea. No one yet in Mark's gospel has come to Jesus with the earnestness of this woman, nor has anyone come to him with such spiritual acumen. And she's going to continue to display that acumen as we get into the second point. Second point, an insulting parable. I say insulting because on the surface, Jesus' response to her pleading, it's by way of parable, and it's sort of startling. And it's startling maybe for a couple of reasons. First reason, he says, let the children be fed first. And since we're a people who like equality and fairness and justice, we see some measure of bigotry in Jesus' response, don't we? You know, let the children be fed first. What are you saying, Jesus? Are you saying that she's not one of your children? Notice that little word there, though, first. That's an important word. Keep the word first in mind, because what Jesus is talking about here when he says children is Israel. The children are the house of Israel. And Jesus, without apology, has come to them first. And so what I mean by that, and this is sort of getting deeply theological, what I mean by that is salvation comes through Israel. That has been God's redemptive plan from the beginning. You read the Bible, very quickly you see that God has chosen a people for himself, a people called Israel. And his purpose, what's his purpose in doing that? He's working through this this people to accomplish a very specific purpose. What's that purpose? It's to reveal himself and to bring salvation to all nations. You and I are a product of that plan and purpose. And it's not that the plan got short-circuited by the unbelieving Jews as much as it was Jesus who came and fulfilled the whole plan. Jesus came and did what the Jews never could do which has nothing to do with getting the law right necessarily, what they could not do, what they did not do, was make the name of the Lord great among all nations. Instead, instead they went to great lengths to corner the God market. They went to great lengths to not let anyone else in, to go as far as calling anybody on the outside unclean, considering them beyond the grace of God, outside the reach of his salvation. That's what they did. So lest we think that Christianity replaces Judaism, no, 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 not at all. It completes Judaism. The design of God in creating a people for himself was to reach the nations through that people. If we're to read ahead, if we're we're to move to Romans 11, we see that Judaism is the tree upon whose branches you and I are grafted into, meaning Israel's presence in God's program must exist for our presence to also exist. So don't, don't trip up on what Jesus is saying. He's just telling her the truth. His first words to her are a reminder of God's redemptive plan. He's saying to her, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jewish Messiah, my mercy first is to the Jews. Okay, now the second reason his response seems a little bothering. He says, For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
by way of parable, Jesus has just called this woman a dog. I mean, is that really appropriate, Jesus? You know, this woman is bowed down in front of you. She's begging for your, your mercy. She's proclaiming your messiahship. And you imply that she's a dog? You know, you, you learn sort of when you're a junior high boy not to call girls dogs. Like, you just don't go there. So raise your hand if you think there's more to the story. Six of you think there's more to the story. That's good. Um, well, there is. And he's not quite insulting her. In the first century, Jews did, in fact, refer to non-Jews as dogs, as Gentile dogs. Again, a name highlighting the fact that they, would, that they were considered unclean. But Jesus did not use the same word for dog that he would have used if he was trying to call her unclean. If he was trying to equate her with some sort of scavenging street animal. If you've ever been to the third world, um, you've seen these dogs that sort of roam the streets. You know, there's one right there. Um, he uses the word for dog that's associated with a household pet. It's the, defi- it's the diminutive form of the noun. And it's really the difference between a dog and a doggy, or may- maybe the difference between a stray dog and a lap dog. So this isn't a mangy street animal. This is the dog that you paid way too much for, right? The dog that's become a part of your family. So, so not, not that, but that other slide there. The dog there looking longingly up at its owner. So, on the surface, as we read through this parable, it seems Jesus excludes her. And then to the casual reader, it appears that he insults her, calls her a dog. So what's her response to this? She says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Wow. To that, to that I say, finally. Finally, someone understands one of Jesus' parables. This is the first time in the book of Mark that this has happened. That Jesus hasn't had to further explain himself. And not only does she understand the parable, she responds back with a parable of her own. I love this wit that she has. She says, that's right. I may be a dog, but you said it yourself. I'm in the house. And if I'm in the house, I will eat the crumbs and scraps that the children do not eat. And those crumbs are more than enough to satisfy me. Because the crumbs are from the bread of life. A crumb from your table, Jesus, is all I ask for. That's all that I need. And it's right here we see how this passage connects with what's been happening in Jesus' recent ministry. Remember, Jesus has just fed bread to 5,000, more like 20,000 people. He's given the bread of life discourse. At the beginning of Mark 7, the scribes and Pharisees are upset because the disciples are eating their bread in an unclean way. And now this woman comes along and says, with all this talk of bread, forget it. All I need is the crumbs. Just give me the crumbs, Jesus. I so appreciate this woman's tenacity. She's not arguing with Jesus here. She's agreeing with him. She's not trying to twist his arm and get him to do something outside of his kingdom purposes. No, she's fully on board with his kingdom purposes, which leads to a great question. Are you on board with God's kingdom purposes? Are you on board with God's kingdom purposes? Or are you busy trying to get God on board with your purposes? That is essentially the Jewish problem in the first century. 
this Messiah, Jesus, had not come to do what they wanted him to do, which was to make them happy and comfortable and powerful. No, he came to seek and save the lost, to redeem a people for himself, to make the name of the Lord glorious among every people on earth. And that's exactly what he's up to in this story this morning. He's showing, again, training the disciples that the work ahead of them is going to be about this, which is to establish a church, not just a church for the Jews in Jerusalem, but a church for all people in Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. This is a prelude to that activity. Last point, briefly. We have faith with proof. Faith with proof. Now, why do I mean by that? Faith with proof. Jesus says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So clearly, Jesus has responded to her plea. And from a distance, he heals the little girl. Three times, Jesus heals someone or does a miracle from a distance, and this is one of them. And so by virtue of the fact that she went home, she clearly trusted his word and his power. She was pleading and pleading and kept pleading and crying out and crying out. She's this bother. He says his daughter, her daughter's been made well. She leaves and goes home. That is a departure of faith. But again... It's Matthew's account that helps us understand the extent of this woman's faith. Matthew tells us that Jesus says something special about her faith. He says that she has great faith. Now, Christ is not one for superlatives. This is only one of two accounts in all the Gospels where Jesus commends or compliments someone's faith. Only twice do we see him do this. The other instance is a centurion, a centurion whose servant was healed. It's in Matthew chapter 8. You might remember that. Jesus says to him, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And of course you see the parallel, don't you? The centurion was also a Gentile. And like this woman, he was seeking help for another. And upon seeing their faith, their great faith, Christ's compassion is set into motion. When you read the Gospels, you realize that that during his time on earth, Jesus did not go to Athens or Rome or Alexandria or any other power center of the day. You know, apart from this trip, he mostly stayed in the regions of Judea and Galilee. His mission was not to have this worldwide crusade of miracles and healing. No, he, he had come to show the Jews the kingdom. And they didn't really like his presentation. But that didn't stop it from coming. And with its coming, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Paul encapsulates what is happening here beautifully. He does so in chapter 15 of the book of Romans, verses 8 and 9 read, Now I say that Christ Christ Jesus has become a servant to the circumcision. He's become a Jew. He came as a Jew. For the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And, catch this, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That is what this Syrophoenician woman is asking for this morning, isn't it? Lord, have mercy on me. That's the cry of of a response to the gospel, of seeing Jesus for who he is, seeing him for what he's done, seeing your need 
for what it is. Assessing all of that and saying, I need mercy. My only way out of this is mercy. The only mercy I can get is Jesus Christ. She cries out for mercy. That's our response to the gospel. Maybe you need to respond to the gospel today. And I'm not going to give you a formula. I'm not going to give you a specific prayer to pray. I'm not going to give you like four or five steps to to make sure that you do that right. I'm going to say, if you need Jesus, if you are in a desperate state of affairs, if you recognize how powerless you are, cry out to him for mercy, and he will give you mercy. I want to conclude very practically this morning. Very practically. Bishop J.C. Ryle, he gives us two encouragements from this passage. I think they're worth sharing. First, this passage is meant to encourage us to pray for others. This mother prays for one who could not pray for herself. On her own behalf, the daughter could not speak a word. She couldn't. But her mother speaks for her, and she does not speak in vain. Hopeless and desperate as the little girl's case appeared. She's a demon-possessed girl in a pagan city. She had an interceding mother. And as Ryle puts it, where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. So moms, dads, pray for your kids. You can take them to church and give them a Christian education and show them the way of salvation, but you cannot give them faith in Christ. You cannot give them a heart of love to God, yet there is one thing you can always do. You can pray for them that they receive that. Second, this passage is meant to teach us to to persevere in praying for others. Again, this woman is begging and begging and begging Jesus. She will not stop. She refuses to be ignored. She pleaded for a few crumbs of his infinite mercy rather than none at all. And through her persistence, she shows just a great faith. I think he allows her to persist, to show the world what a great example she is in perseverance. Who is it that you've just been praying for? For years and years, if not decades and decades. Keep praying for them. Don't stop. Keep praying for them. When I came to faith in Christ as a as a high schooler, ninth grader, I had this just burden for my dad. I just, I just knew that, that he wasn't following Christ. He, he, didn't, he didn't have any sort of spiritual sensibilities at all. I'd never heard him pray in my life. And so I just began to pray for my dad and pray for my dad. And, and literally over years, which turned into decades, um, a decade and a half at least, just praying for my dad. And then he got, he got sick, he got cancer, and the, the week before he died, five days before he died, he goes into the hospital, and his final words to me were, I think God has given me more than I can handle this time. I think God has given me more than I can handle this time. To which I said, and this is the final thing from me that I know that he actually heard and understood, I said, he's done that, so you'll trust only in him. persistence, persistence. And I believe those final words that he heard from me, those final words that he confessed to me were a reconciling of him to God. A decade and a half of prayer, of prayer, of looking for spiritual fruit, of looking for a sensitivity to the gospel and finally seeing it. And maybe it was that God had to use that sort of illness to bring him to the end of himself. 
that was the thing that led him to cry out for mercy. One of the great prayers of the English language is the prayer of the approach to the Lord's Supper. It's written by a guy named Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer. And it comes from this story here in Mark. And over the centuries, millions of people have prayed this prayer. I want us, I want us to now pray it together as we pray and enter into our time of communion. So let's just bow our heads. I'm going to pray this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's going to hopefully prepare our hearts for our time with the Lord's table. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name.